Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Marion, how's it going? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. It's it's kind of cool to finally get you on. I've been a fan of uh, humanprogress.org and, and all of the work that you've done now for quite some time. Like, How long have you been at Cato? Well, I've been at Cato for 10 years, and uh, I started in 2002 to work on uh, the transition of formerly socialist countries to capitalism, because I am originally from Eastern Europe. And I also spent some time working on sub-Saharan African issues because I spent 10 years of my life uh, living and well, living and being educated in, in, in uh, Southern Africa. And so I, I, I think that the two sort of mesh together and generally it was about writing about economies which, which are transitioning from a non-free environment into a sort of free market slash democratic environment. And then in 2011, I started working on human progress. So I've been doing human progress for about a decade. Give us the, uh, we'll get more into it, but give us the, the elevator pitch on human progress. Well, basically, the world has been improving for about 200 years, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit longer, uh, along many different dimensions of of human development. So most people sort of understand that um, we are living longer than people who came before us. Most people maybe understand, although not as many as you would hope, that we are much richer than people who came here before us. But when it comes to other things like, for example, um, um, state of violence in the world, people have a completely skewed idea, or even of the environment. You know, the world is simply much safer than it was uh, before. And even many, uh, many measures of environmental quality are much better than they used to be. So there is just this huge, um, huge, huge uh, amount of evidence out there, and many different scholars working on the subject of human progress, who are pointing to as I said, the multi-dimensionality of human progress, uh, but um, most people are not aware of it. So the idea was to try to put it online and to write about it so that people understand the, uh, the real um, state of the world rather than the apocalyptic state of the world. We have, a, we have a guest. He crashes once in a while, I apologize. This is Reardon. He is an objectivist, although he's violating the non-aggression principle right now by drinking my water. Well, as long as he um, keeps away from my Coke. <laughs> okay, so, so I, I was I was telling, yeah, he he doesn't like Coke, but he's, um, so this uh, this this may be a measure that you haven't looked at, but I, I tried to do a pet freedom index, um, which doesn't really work because of cultural differences and and all sorts of stuff. But my general thesis was, um, we Americans, we we people who live in capitalist countries who who just wallow in prosperity. We treat our pets like family, and this guy eats better than I do um, on a cost-per-pound basis. Um, he's probably eating filet mignon, and I'm, I'm eating hamburger. And this is one of the many um, joys, um, things that make us happy, um, luxury goods that only come from abundance and prosperity because it would be absurd to treat a cat like this 100 years ago. Yes, um, so I can give you an anecdote from my own life. My, my grandmother, who's died about uh, 10 years ago, um, she grew up during the Second World War. They did actually have to eat cats 
uh, dodging earmuffs, Germans earmuffs, and earmuffs. that sort of things. But they, they did have to resort to that yeah. sort of thing. The food, especially toward the end of the war, was very scarce. And um, then, of course, in more modern times, uh, I was in Zimbabwe at the height of their hyperinflation. Uh, they've had the second highest hyperinflation in human history, uh, recorded history, yeah. and that was 96 trillion percent. That's million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, sextillion. So 96 trillion percent. And the economy basically collapsed. And uh, obviously, under those circumstances, you, you couldn't really uh, protect the animals in the wild. In fact, people started slaughtering giraffes and zebras and elephants partly for meat, partly for the skin, partly for the tusks and things like that. So the environment gets it in the neck when people are very poor very quickly. And in Venezuela, more recently, uh, after their economic crash, uh, thanks to 21st century socialism, people actually ate the animals in, in the Caracas Zoo because they were so hungry. So yes, uh, socialism is not good for animals. Yeah, and um, it, I started talking about, about I'm, I'm a big cat guy and, and all my cats have been on the show, um, whether they were invited or not. But I, but I actually started talking about this in the context of, of prosperity um, after I read a piece in the New York Times, which was about a family in Venezuela that was making the choice, do I feed my kids yes. the family dog or do I just let the dog go where someone else is going to kill the animal? And, and I think Americans, particularly young Americans who grow up in this prosperity where, where your pets are, are part of your family, it's almost inconceivable that such a thing happens anywhere. And perhaps this is a, this is a fundamental problem for the argument that you make about, about superabundance and prosperity is that it's so contextual. So if you grow up where the biggest threat to your um, prosperity is whether or not you got the latest edition of the iPad, your your context for how far we've come in the last 10, 20, 50, 100 years is totally skewed. Yeah, um, and I mean, when you have an economic collapse, it's extraordinary what people resort to. It, it almost looks like you never give her any water or him because no, he, he's, he's so he fascinated by he it. He prefers my water. Um, <laughs> And I don't. I can't explain that. It's it's not very libertarian to take my water like that. But um, in in response to what you were saying, of course, we do have actually eyewitness accounts of cannibalism in Ukraine during the 19, early nineteen thirties, mm -hmm. uh, when Stalin during the era of um, during the era of forced collectivization, what the Soviet government was doing was taking all the grain from the farmers, so that they could purchase uh, Western machinery. Obviously, the Soviet Union couldn't produce machinery itself, but in order to industrialize, they needed Western machinery. And the way they would do it, they would take all the fa farm surplus and, and sell it abroad for hard currency or in exchange for machines, including machines from Germany. And, um, and so people ran out of food in, in Ukraine during the Holodomor. Uh, I think something like, we don't really know, it could be two, two million people, it could be four million people, I'm not entirely sure. But, but we have eyewitness accounts of cannibalism happening where when a, when a member of family died, they would be eaten by the fellow human beings. And we cannot really relate to that in the West because we've been, uh, it's, it's very difficult. I mean, right now you probably couldn't even come up with somebody who, who, who remembers the Great Depression and Great Depression was, uh, was not as bad as say, the Holodomor in, in, in Ukraine it was uh, it was horrific, but but not the same, not the same scale. 
Um, and I think that, um, sort of going back to the original question, is that I think that, um, you know, if, if you're looking at today, the United States, and you compare it with our past, then you cannot but be filled by gratitude. In other words, oh, thank God I'm living in the United States in 2022. Yes, we have our problems. Nothing is perfect. But compared to, you know, 50 years ago or 100 years ago, pretty much everything is better. Whereas I think that the problem that you are identifying is the utopians, they are not looking into the past. They are comparing the present with a utopian future where everything works for everyone at all times. And if that is your perception of the world, then the, then the prevailing emotion is not one of gratitude, but one of resentment. How is it possible that we'll live in the society which has so many problems? Yeah. And therefore, as I said, it's, 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 a, it's a matter of resentment, and resentment is a fundamentally a negative attitude and a negative emotion rather than gratitude, which is positive and empowering. Yeah, and, I, and a part of it, I think, is, and, and I'll put on my Austrian economics hat, as we do sometimes on this show, like part of it is, is thinking about the market as, as Mises would say, as a process of mm -hmm. figuring stuff out. I'm paraphrasing right now, but it's just people that are free enough to collaborate and, and innovate and figure stuff out. So the question is, is that process leading to better outcomes, more prosperity, longer lifespans, all these measures that you, that you would use every day, or is it going in the opposite direction as opposed to some ideal end state, which is is kind of fantastical, like the the, the socialist end state. Um, I guess it's a communist end state that that you know the state withers away, and nobody worries about anything, and everybody's happy. Um, it doesn't really make sense in the human context. Yes, because even if we can identify all sorts of problems that we are suffering from today, and I think that we are going doing a very good job identifying the problems that we have today because everybody can talk about, all, all they can talk about is problems. There are going to be problems that are going to arise in the future that we just don't have any comprehension of what they might be, partly because of a very interesting aspect of the human mind. The, 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 one specific type of negativity bias is that we keep on redefining a problem uh, in 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 ways um, in in different ways. For example, chattel slavery, or rather, the word slavery meant something to people 250 years ago or 300 years ago. That doesn't mean today. Slavery meant chattel slavery. It meant taking one human being, selling him to a seller. Uh, putting chains on him and then making him property of somebody else. This is what everybody understood as slavery. But now you have you have bona fide uh, academics at universities talking about wage slavery. So the fact that I have to wake up in the morning, um, you know, at 7 a.m. and be at Cato at 9 a.m. in order to do my work, in order to earn my salary, that is now described as wage slavery. Oh, of course, it's ridiculous, but it's a perfect example of how we keep on redefining problems upwards. Yeah. I, I love quoting um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez when she said, and I'm, I'm getting this quote almost exactly right, uh, my generation, speaking of, of, of uh, Gen X, has never known true prosperity. And objectively speaking, she grew up in the wealthiest area, in the wealthiest country, at the wealthiest point in the history of the entire human race. Yes. But, and yet, she believes that, and, and there are, like, uh, universities are flooded with people that, that would echo that sentiment. Yeah, I mean, 
she's communicating via Twitter using her iPhone, wearing expensive clothes and sipping on a $5 latte. Yeah. Um, $5 can take you very far in Zambia uh, or in uh, or in Zimbabwe, I can assure her of that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a very strange, it's a very strange, so it's highly narcissistic, by the way. Uh, it's ignorant because she has no clue what the rest of the world is. It's completely ahistorical because she has no clue about what the world looked like until very recently. And of course, it's deeply narcissistic. Um, it's all about me, me, me. Um, yeah. Very interesting. Well, may maybe one of your advantages, and I didn't know this, but you just mentioned it, uh, you, you grew up under uh, socialism in Eastern Europe. T tell me a little bit about that story. Well, um, well, the story begins with my birth in the Czechoslovak Socialist Republic. And um, yeah, I had communism uh, until I was I was 13. Socialism. Okay, so socialism is the middle step between awful liberalism to communism. Socialism right. is the middle step. So, so apparently no country was ever communist. The, the, um, the dictatorship of the proletariat, a lot of people are going to die in the process of imposing this stage of the beautiful process of that's communism. Right, that's right. Yeah. Communism was the goal. Socialism was the middle, you know, the, the, the middle process, the middle step. And um, and uh, what I would say about my childhood is that uh, it is no way as horrific of what people experienced in the 40s, 50s and the 60s under communism. By the time that I became conscious uh, of the world around me, say age, age, age of 10 or 11, 85, 86, um, I, um, uh, I knew that we were living under uh, under a police state. I knew it was a dictatorship. I knew we didn't have any political rights. I knew that we were poorer because the information about what life was like in West Germany or in Austria, uh, no matter what the censorship, it, it sort of tended to make its way. We could occasionally watch uh, TV on a good day, uh, like a signal from, from West Germany or from Austria, or listen to the radio clandestinely. So we knew that standards of living were there. So I knew that we were poorer, um, and I knew that we didn't have any political rights. But the sort of fear that people had of communism, th that we no longer had. We watched our step, uh, we watched what we said, but we knew that if we stepped out of the line, we wouldn't get shot. Uh, and, and so it was a little bit of a uh, calmer experience of socialism than most other people had. Uh, it was still crappy, if I may use that word on your show. Um, everything was incredibly ugly. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the one thing about socialism is that it makes everything ugly. The art is ugly, the food is ugly and inedible very often, if you have it. Uh, the clothes were disgusting, um, the roads were dirty. Everything was incredibly gray. People seem to think that the color of communism is red, but in fact it's gray. Everything was gray. And so when the wall came down and we went to Vienna for the first time, it was literally like stepping out of a black and white movie into a, into a color film. Uh, everything was just vibrant. And, and I think the biggest thing that struck me as interesting is that people in the West were smiling. Nobody ever smiled in Eastern Europe. Um, so that's, that's basically my upbringing until the age of 13. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org kol and support Kibbe on Liberty 
so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. Yeah, and the the, 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 the happiness part and the, uh, the downside of that would be paranoia. Like you, you didn't trust your neighbors because you didn't know if somebody was... Yes, that's going true. Going to rat you out for not being a good citizen. That's true. And Czechoslovakia was slightly better at that in a sense that you could trust your family. Uh, in East Germany, you couldn't even trust the members of your own family, let alone in the, in the Soviet Union, where people were uh, regularly uh, informing the police on the behavior of their parents, their children, etc. Czechoslovakia never had that yeah. um, sort of familial business. But yes, you had to be concerned about what the neighbors saw or, or heard. So, you know, if, if you were listening to Radio for Europe or Radio Liberty, it would be on, you know, low volume. Uh, when parents send you to school, they would tell you the things that we talk about at home. Uh, you cannot repeat at school because there would be negative consequences for us and that sort of thing. So let's, uh, let's, let's talk about your new book, Superabundance, and, and let's, let's try to lay some, some intellectual groundwork. And I'm, I'm going to butcher my intellectual history, but it strikes me that there's, there's this clash of, of two camps um, going all the way back, maybe to Malthus, but I'm sure you could go further back. But there's the um, negative sum gain. We're always, um, to the extent we gain anything, somebody else loses. Um, the, the world's running out of resources. Um, capitalism is exploitive, and, and it's going to destroy itself under its own weight versus um, classical liberalism. This idea that by working together, people could produce more stuff and, and, and build prosperity for everyone. Um, I take it you're in the latter camp. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's, what, what is the thesis of uh, superabundance? Well, the thesis, uh, which, as you say, the, the debate about population growth and resources goes back two and a half thousand years. The ancient Greeks had it, Plato, Aristotle, the Confucians had it in China, so it's a very old issue. Um, but, um, um, you know, we could talk about Malthus in 1798, his influential essay on population, where he presumed to show mathematically that population would uh, outrun our ability to, to feed people. Then, uh, of course, in 1968, you have the population bomb by Paul Ehrlich uh, and the great wager with Julian Simon. Um, and um, and, and w maybe I should say we started the book by looking at up updating the wager between Simon and, and Ehrlich. Explain for people who don't know the, the story what, uh, what Julian Simon did. So Paul Ehrlich writes a very very influential book, The Population Bomb. Hundreds of millions of people are going to die in the 70s and 80s because we are not going to be able to feed them, right? And, um, uh, you know, he he was on Johnny Carson 20 times, which is an incredible record given how difficult it was on, to, to get on Johnny Carson. Uh, you have him uh, being... Uh, Really, the intellectual father of some of the of some of the movies back then, like Soil and Green, you know, very scary presentation of the future and so forth, and um, and basically Julian Simon, who was an economist at uh, at University of Maryland and also Cato senior fellow at that time, uh, he challenged Paul Ehrlich to a wager. They they would bet on five metals. Ehrlich chose them: uh, copper, tungsten, tin, 
um, something else. Um, and the wager would be for $1,000 over the next 10 years. Everybody knew population of the world was going to go on expanding. The question was what was going to happen to resources. So based on the assumption that population makes resources more scarce, Ehrlich predicted that the price of resources would go up. Right? Simon was saying, no, it will go down. And in fact, when the wager came to an end in uh, 1990, uh, the, the, the average price of these five resources has fallen by 36%. And so, so Ehrlich had to send Simon a check for $576. And so originally what we did was to try to update this, this, this wager and see if it still holds. And then we put a little twist on it, which is that Simon and Ehrlich dealt in real prices. Uh, your listeners will be familiar with the difference between inflation and real price. Inflation, uh, sorry, nominal and real price. Nominal price is what you see in the store, but in order to get a sense whether something is getting more or less expensive, you have to adjust for inflation, right? The problem with both of these prices, nominal and real, is that they only look at what is happening in the productivity side of the, in what is happening in the production of, of these resources. If, if, if you can mine more of them or, 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 or grow more of them, they are going to go down in price. But they are not looking at wages, right? There is also productivity gains in wages. As you go through life and as humanity becomes more mature, more knowledgeable, productivity gains are reflected also in wages. So what we came up with was the concept of time price. Time price is basically how long you have to work in minutes or hours in order to afford something. And the beauty of the time price is that it counts, it looks at both what is happening to the price of the commodity, but also what is happening in your, in your wallet. So a perfect example would be if a Hershey bar costs a dollar and you are making $10 an hour, you can have 10 Hershey bars, right? Easy. If in 20 or 30 years time, Hershey bar increases to $2 per Hershey bar, but you are now earning $30, you can now afford 15 Hershey bars. So this is how we calculate the, 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 the time price. And what we found is that when we applied it to the original wa wager, Simon actually won by 40%, not by 36. And that got us thinking, how far back can we take it and how big can we make it? And so in this book, we look at prices of resources, um, time prices of resources going back to 1850. And we look at hundreds of commodities, food, uh, fuels, um, metals, minerals, even some services to see what has become more or less expensive. And um, the one, one of the other conclusions that's fundamental to the book is that more people are better, yes. which, which is the opposite of the Ehrlich thesis. That that's right. But so this is this is an original insight by Simon uh, made long time ago is that the human brain is the ultimate resource. Um, how does innovation happen? We create a model in the book about what we think, how we theorize about why prices are coming down. Um, and obviously, in a capitalist economy, they are coming down because of innovation. But where does innovation come from? Well, it can come only from one place, and that's the human mind, the ultimate resource, right? And the trouble is that only a small fraction of humanity innovates or, or invents anything in their lifetimes, right? So if you have a billion people in the world, like in 1800, and the fraction is maybe 5%, then that's obviously going to be many fewer people than a world that we live in today, which is 8 billion people. The fraction of, of the, uh, you know, the fraction will result in a much greater number of people who are going to invent and innovate. And so, and so the, the overall size of the population is important because, you know, you've got the human brain, you've got the population, then you've got your innovator who comes up with an idea which leads to invention. It gets tested in the market, 
and you, re, you, you end up with production increasing or productivity increasing innovations that then increase our standard of living. But it's also obvious that population size itself cannot be the full answer. Because if it were, then China and India would always be the most, um, uh, the, the richest countries in the world. China has been the richest, the, the most populous country for about two and a half thousand years. But until recently, they were dirt poor. So it has to be the combination of freedom and population. More people who live under freedom are able to communicate, um, are able to interact, speak freely, exchange ideas, try them out in the marketplace with the proper market signals and price signals. That results in innovation. That is the essence of the book. Yeah. So it it's it's really a, a freedom thing. And I, I, I wonder about this because I always think about Julian Simon and, and the message you're giving me today um, very much flies contrary to the narrative that I would get on Twitter. And I realize Twitter rots your brain, but I spent a lot of time on there because um, particularly in the context of, of the past two and a half years under lockdowns, the World Bank, um, I don't know what the estimate is today. We're waiting for the latest numbers, but in 2020, they, they estimated that 150 million people um, were plunged into severe poverty by lockdowns, they've since revised that number upwards a bit, but 2020 was a year where that, that beautiful growth curve, more and more people being lifted out of poverty by, by, by free markets actually fell. Correct. Um, how do you, like, and Julian Simon think, things are always gonna get better and it's very difficult for governments to screw that up, but it, we obviously, we were just talking about stories where government catastrophically screwed that up. Oh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Um, the book makes a claim that there is nothing in terms of physical limitations of the planet that can prevent us or that will prevent us from creating ever more value, right? So there is a finite number of atoms in the world, but those can be arranged and rearranged in ever more value-added ways, right? Um, and 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 so so there is an and because human ideas are not subject to 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 physical limits, they can be produced so long as you have a lot of people interacting in a, in, a, in an atmosphere of freedom. Then we can apply those ideas to the finite number of atoms, but but create ever more value out of it. So there is no physical limit to the value that we can create on Earth. But that's a different argument from saying that if we refuse to innovate, or if we decide to go to war or blow up the world in, with, with nuclear weapons, uh, that we cannot bring, um, bring, bring prosperity to an end. So I think that Julian Simon would definitely agree with us uh, that it, it, it's really, we are making a point about the, the planet being able to sustain us in ever more increasing standards of living. Whether we will have those standards of living or not, those high standards of living, totally depends on the government. Yeah. Um, right now, Europe is suffering from climate, but not climate change. It is suffering from climate policies. It is suffering from bad decisions made by short-sighted um, politicians who were um, who, who were obsessing about a problem that will that may happen sometime in the future, whilst ignoring problems in the present? Um, so, so even if the world can be prosperous in the future, doesn't mean it will be. There is nothing deterministic about this because there is always a scope for catastrophe, either created by humans 
as I said, nuclear war um, or, or, or protectionism um, or dictatorship, which will prevent us from innovating and exchanging ideas. Or it can happen because of nature. We could have a pathogen that, uh, that will kill us all, um, in which case, of course, I would love to be a member of a society that is much richer and that can, that can tackle these problems with supercomputers and so forth. Or we can have an asteroid strike, in which case, again, I would much rather be in a much richer world that can maybe power super powerful lasers with fusion energy so that we can blast them out of the sky. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, the, the experience in Europe um, starting any day now with this sort of self-imposed um, regulation of of fossil fuels is is kind of shocking to me. I feel like they've they've radically empowered um, Putin, and they've unilaterally disarmed in a way that I can't quite explain through traditional politics. But but I feel like a lot of people in Germany perhaps are going to feel like you did when you were eight years old in Soviet-controlled Czechoslovakia, wondering why you have to sit in the cold. Well. To, to be absolutely politically incorrect, um, if I may be, uh, to <laughs> we, how this is going we, to play we, out. We do this here. But um, Germans like their ideologies. Um, and this is just the latest uh, ideology which they have embraced en masse and then are now suffering the consequences of it. It's called extreme environmentalism. Um, caring about the environment and clean planet is a good thing, but it has to go hand in hand with human flourishing and understanding that humans are important. That without humans, the world really doesn't matter. The only reason the world matters to anyone is because we are there to perceive it with our senses. If we are not there, if we die from cold or, or from a war, the animals don't care about the planet. They care about food and sex and not being eaten by somebody else, right? So humans are at the center of this. The, 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 the essence of the Enlightenment, the essence of humanism, is to put the human being at the center of it. But of course, clean planet also means that, you know, that forms a part of human flourishing and a human happiness. So these two have to be wedded in a smart way. And Europe lost its way. It sort of downplayed the, the aspect of human flourishing uh, in, in return for a wholesale embrace of the most apocalyptic environmental extremism, which is... Uh, which, which, which is, uh, which is fundamentally, fundamentally anti-human. I mean, these people, and I want to make it absolutely clear that there are very smart and honest environmentalists who are trying to do their best. But there is a fringe of the environmentalist movement who are fundamentally anti-humanist. Mm -hmm. They think we are cancer on the planet. Open Google New York Times articles about how the world would be better without people in it. Why it's a good idea that humanity should end, cease to exist. Um, how it is a crime uh, and a form of narcissism to bring a baby into the world, and so on and so forth. You, you can see these articles everywhere. And so my point is that you and I believe that ideas matter. And I think that Europe, or large chunks of Europe, simply got overtaken by this idea of extreme environmentalism, which dominated their newspapers and their media for decades. And if we can get even more controversial, I think this is partly because traditional forms of religion have disappeared and people are looking for a substitute. I'm an atheist, um, but I do believe that uh, to the extent that everybody needs some sort of a 
sense of transcendental, some sort of a story of who they are, what they are doing on the planet, where they are going, right? The traditional religion provided that. And those people who are now missing the traditional religion in their lives or, 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 or have never experienced it suddenly found in environmental extremism a perfect replacement for traditional forms of religion. Yeah. It is actually extraordinary how closely uh, Christian beliefs and, and uh, Christian mythology maps onto, onto the environmental one. I mean, you've got the Garden of Eden in, in, in the Bible. You've got the pristine Mother Gaia before, uh, you know, the Industrial Revolution. Uh, you've got your saints, um, Greta Thunberg. You know, you've got your priests, your priesthood, the IPCC, you know, all the great and the good. Um, you even have indulgences whereby Leo DiCaprio or the Duke of Sussex can fly around the world on private jets, then just give a few thousand dollars to a green cause and all of their sins have been washed away. So, so that's a long way of basically saying that, that um, this happened because very few people in Europe were willing to stand up and say no to this new Gaia worshipping religion. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibi on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, Donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. What's what's fascinating? I think you're right, and I think what's fascinating about it, like I, it's kind of like um, scientism has become the new faith, and you know, uh, science deniers is the ultimate pejorative uh, thrown by by um, climate extremists. But it does feel like it goes back to Malthus when you know the the implication if not the explicit conclusion of Malthus was that people are bad for the planet and people are bad and more people are even worse but your form of environmentalism is actually pro pro, pro people more people more innovation um, more innovation that leads to better environmental outcome yeah this is the key you look at the Yale uh, environmental uh, protection uh, rankings and the countries with the best environment are the richest countries. There's just no way around it. Just to look at the data. You don't have to believe me. Look at the data. It is the poor people who don't care about their environment and flush all of their plastic in, in, in the river and then it will end up in, in, in the ocean. It is them who do not have the money to create the proper um, um, you know, uh, cleaning facilities and um, sewage systems, etc. Um, because living on a clean planet is a luxury good. Maybe, 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 maybe it shouldn't be, but it is something that you have to pay for in higher taxes and more regulation and so forth. And the richest countries are simply the best, um, the best uh, protectors of their environment, not to mention that they are the ones with the money to ensure that people elsewhere protect their environments. So, for example, we have in the world record acreage of 
global uh, of, of of the world, which is covered by nature uh, nature parks, right? And never before has as much of the ocean been protected from human uh, exploitation as it is today, the, the square mileage of, of the oceans. But these things need to be enforced. Who's got the money to be flying airplanes looking for, uh, uh, for, for uh, people breaking the law and fishing in the wild? Um, who, 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 who is going to pay the Coast Guard? Who is going to pay uh, all, all those people who, who, who make sure that you cannot go into a nature reserve and, and kill a bunch of animals? It's only rich societies that do that. Is it um, is it the religiosity of of this? I don't even know what to call it because it's it's much bigger than than radical environmentalism. It's it's kind of an anti-human kind of thing. I don't know what you would call it, but we seem those of us that believe in in markets and and people solving problems and freedom seem to have a very hard time convincing um, a lot of other people who are who are freaked out about this stuff that, you know, if, if we would just let people be free, we could solve all sorts of problems. Why, why can't we make that sale? Well, I think that there are, th th there are different groups here going on at the same time um, or, or acting at the same time. Um, we were talking about extreme environmentalists and, 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 and for those, um, actually a coming of an apocalypse is weirdly speaking, when you think about it, it's kind of satisfying, okay? If you hate capitalism, if you think that humanity is producing a world that is going to just fry, that is going to just blow up in this massive environmental catastrophe, then every time that you have a environmental problem, like a hurricane that is particularly strong, or a flooding in Bangladesh, that is a reinforcement of the worldview which they are already having. It just tells them, yes, the apocalypse are coming. You are right in the views that you are holding. Therefore, it validates the entire viewpoint that you have, right? I mean, these are extremists. I want to make sh clear that, you know, these are the people who will glue themselves to the surface of a road in order to prevent traffic from flowing. But that's not where most people are, I don't think. Most people are simply contemplating the finite number of atoms in the world and are wondering how is it that we are going to produce value out of those atoms in order to feed a growing population of the world. And this is where Thomas Sowell comes into it. Because Thomas Sowell had that great quote in one of his books, I can't, can't recall just what it is right now, but um, and, and the quote goes something like this, the caveman had exactly the same number of atoms, the, exactly the same amount of resources that we have today. And the difference between his standard of living and our standard of living is the new knowledge, the innovations, the productivity gains that we were able to bring into, into the resources that we already had. Now, so you compare today with caveman's standard of living and realize that it's the same natural resources. So why cannot we compare ourselves with people 200 years from now with massively increased standards of living who will also have the same resources that we have. Uh, that doesn't make any logical point, but it needs to be explained, right, to, to, to a person who has never encountered this problem before. With the exception of a few hundred pounds of steel and metal and whatever we shot up into the space, we have the same resources that we always had. Um, but we can produce much more value from it, just as 
we can vis-a-vis the cavemen, so the future generations will be vis-a-vis us. Um, do you make uh, policy proposals in the book um, if we want more innovation, more problem solving, um, more prosperity? Well, the one that I don't need to tell you about because we are on the same page is obviously that we need to have a free world or rather a large chunk of humanity has to be free in order to um, in order to keep on inventing and innovating. Um, the whole world doesn't need to be free. It would be nice if it was, because then everybody in Africa and Latin America and Asia could work together to come up with new, uh, with new innovations. Goodness knows how many people in Iran or in Syria uh, are never are potential geniuses who will never be able to apply their brains because they have to live under a regime like that rather than living in the United States. You know, Steve Jobs' father was from Syria. Mm-hmm. So had he not come here, Steve Jobs would probably waste his life in, in, in Syria and never contributed to anything to st- stock of human knowledge. So it is important um, that as much of the world is free. It doesn't all have to be free because ultimately the benefits of freedom will also trickle down to places that don't have freedom. Um, but it is also not true that if only Switzerland was free, that would be good enough because there aren't enough people. In other words, the kind of research that we can get from a population of 10 million people in Switzerland is probably, it's still going to be good if, if they live in a, in a free country, but it would be much nicer if, if you have freedom like in the United States, which has 330 million people, or in India, which has 1.5 billion people, um, you simply have more brains which are able to function in freedom. So the freedom component will be obvious to you. Um, with regard to uh, fecundity or, uh, or, or um, the number of babies that people have, here I would say we obviously, we obviously have to be very careful. Um, I'm a libertarian. Um, classical liberal, um, I believe in freedom. I delight in the fact that women um, are able to enter the workforce, earn a lot of money. Obviously, the, the more the more educated they are, the more professional they are, uh, the bigger the opportunity cost of staying at home, taking care of children. And I would call those what I would call those positive reasons for the decline, massive decline in child childbearing and, and fertility rates in 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 the West. But it, we don't we don't dispute those or we don't attack those in 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 the book we just take it as a given that the world population will or should represent the free choices of men and women what we have a problem with and what we attack in the book is that parental choices are not only impacted by opportunities of women in the workspace or positive reasons they're also impacted by negative reasons and one of them is this environmental apocalyptic viewpoint we now have enough um, public uh, opinion polls, enough surveys to know that the, the, the feelings about the future of the planet uh, and where the planet is heading from an environmental standpoint has a massive impact on people's desire to have more children. Mm-hmm. Because people are telling us, it's all in the book, um, throughout the world, people are freaking out. People are not having babies, they tell us, uh, because the world in the future was going to be horrible, or it's bad for resources, or it's bad for the carbon footprint, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, so these very personal decisions by men and women don't happen in a vacuum. And if the zeitgeist 
is very anti-natalist and anti-humanist, then that in itself is going to drive fertility rates down even further with negative consequences in the future. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. It's, it's funny because I, I watch enough uh, uh, videos on TikTok where... Um, it's, it's, it's usually a woman, but sometimes it's a man. It's a, it's someone from, from Gen Z, not only saying that they don't want to have children, but that it's a sin mm-hmm. and they use the word yes. sin. Yes. Again, that religious um, aspect. Yeah, yeah. The religious aspect of it. So it's, it's considered, uh, your duty not to make what would otherwise be a free choice. Um, it's. And, and it's, are, it's creepy. It's creepy. And and there are a lot of important people. I'm, I'm you know, I you know, I realize this is an intellectual conversation, and uh, that. This, but some of these people may not be particularly smart, but they get on the telly, uh, telling people not to have babies. AOC is one of them. Not the genius herself. Uh, Bill Maher, smart guy, but completely Malthusian, right? Um, Tucker, uh, smart guy, but he's increasingly Malthusian in his in his. Uh, um, in his views, um, so so the people with millions of listeners um, still get a big dose of Malthusianism in their daily news diet, yeah. and that has real life consequences. Yeah, like um, um, anger and catastrophe. Um, very much sell on social media and, and maybe that's that's what we're getting at here like you can you can say that we're totally screwed and by, by the way I've, I've been not particularly optimistic the last few years I, I think some of the policy decisions particularly lockdowns have been catastrophic for people at the margin in countries like India where um, they don't they don't get to feed their cats the the expensive cat food that I do that's not even a conceivable world for them um, so it's easy to, to look at a lot of government decisions and, and be sort of pessimistic about things. And, and by the way, pessimism sells and catastrophe sells and, and you're a bad person if you have children sells to, to certain populations. So it, it's sort of, um, you're swimming against the grain with this book and, and I already asked you this once, but I'll ask you again. <laughs> oh, you're back, buddy. You're here for the closer? You know, um, Steven Pinker, before you go, Steven Pinker has a great phrase. He says that if you are warning people like Nostradamus against the horrible things happening in the future, you sound like somebody who cares. Whereas if you are selling them a positive picture of the future, it, yeah. it feels like you are trying to sell them something, which is ironic because I'm trying to sell this book. But but ultimately, uh, you, you sound like a salesman, like a shallow yeah. sales, salesman. Oh, don't worry. Things are going to get better. Yeah, and I, I, I sort of... Um you know, the, the last uh, two years have sort of knocked me off my game because Free the People and this show and everything that we produce is, our intention is as best we can most of the time to sell the beautiful story mm-hmm. of what happens when people are free and, and how voluntary cooperation um, uh, does things that you can't even imagine today to, to make the world a more beautiful place. Um, but we've also told stories about uh Mao and the Great Leap Forward. Uh, you were mentioning that the horrific stories about about cannibal, cannibalism in, in Ukraine. Same thing happened Absolutely. in China. Absolutely. 
And 45 million people yeah. he is responsible for killing. That's extraordinary. And so, like, obviously he proved that you can break the system. Yes. Um, but then again, um, somehow China has survived and the current Chinese government is trying to break the system again. Correct. With a sort of a... Part of the reason why I'm not terribly concerned about sort of China overtaking the world is because since 2012, their freedom has been declining. Um, I mean, we could still end up in a war with them, but, you know, I think that in, in, a, in, a, in a China which is increasingly totalitarian, again, it's very difficult to see them, you know, rise from $10,000 per person per year to $70,000 per person per year where we are. Yeah. The economy overall may be as big as ours. But it's very difficult for them to fill that gap um, with the kind of economic and political institutions they have. Yeah. My, my friend Simon Lee, who's been on the show, has talked about um, the Hong Kong as the economic engine that, that really held the, the Chinese economy together. And obviously, they've just shut that down. That has to have consequences. But but, but, but the bigger threat, and that perhaps this is the same threat that, that Europe um, and its radical environmentalism poses to America. There seems to be a quite romantic view of the the Chinese style social credit systems that I think would be another great way to crush innovation and, and the human spirit. Oh, absolutely! I, I think it's horrific. And in fact, the former head of the British Supreme Court, uh, Jonathan Sumption, uh, famously said that. Um, uh, you know, you end up, at, you know, you end up with a Chinese disease and then a Chinese society if you're going to tackle this way. He's been very outspoken um, against the kind of draconian measures that that people have taken in Europe. Um, they never thought they could shut down the European society, but Italians did it uh, based on the Chinese model, and then everybody else followed except for Sweden. And thank God for the Swedes, Oops, because the Swedes, um, because now we can run empirical studies yeah. showing what, we, what were the effects of the countries which behave like Sweden and then countries like ours. Thank, we were also saved by the, by the, by the federal system, though. Yeah. Uh, some states were more draconian than others. But I agree with you that it was an extraordinary episode of mass hysteria in American uh, history that we are going to be paying for for a very long time to come. Yeah, that uh, I would have very little doubt that, that free people could put things back together and make things better and, and, and fix all of this damage, um, which still doesn't replace the, the, the loss in, in, in prosperity that was particularly felt at the margins of society. But this, this is the ongoing struggle, and I, I'm going to ask you to come up with something positive to end this with because um, it's the clash between free people and innovation and the, the workarounds that entrepreneurs, whether they be um, um, food cart vendors or Steve Jobs, come up with to work around government versus this, this ongoing overreach of government that is equally empowered by technology. Uh, the Chinese social credit system wouldn't have worked during Mao's time. They used uh, families to rat each other out. And that's, that's dangerous, but we need, like, I want to be an optimist. I'm, I'm always um, of the belief that, that people beat oppression. Um, where are you on this? Um, I think that any technology from, um, uh, you know, from a club 
<laughs> wielded by a caveman to um, to, to, a, to a motor car um, to this universal surveillance system can be used for for good and evil. Uh, any technology can be used uh, in 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 those separate ways, and. Um, um, what really matters is how people react to it, how they interact with it, what, what is their response. Um, I am hopeful that, um, um, you know, it's very difficult to predict the future. Um, and as you said, um, you know, freedom has been in retreat across the world for about 10 years, which is, which is a long time. I mean, we have reached peak liberal democracy about 10 years ago, and then, um, but I'm optimistic, and I'm hopeful rather, that, uh, that we can continue uh, to produce prosperity in a, and, and, and we can remain living in a free society. I realize I'm rambling because I, I do see the surveillance state as being extremely uh, invasive and potentially totalitarian. Uh, perhaps I would, I would conclude by saying that so is human ingenuity in getting around these problems and making it difficult uh, for the government to succeed. Um, we do have a federal system. We do have a nation which has been, broadly speaking, committed to a form of freedom for 250 years. We are not scarred by decades of slaughter, like the Chinese are. Um, and so maybe we are just a better material out of which this kind of oppression cannot arise. But future will tell. If I knew what the future held, I'd be a much richer man. Yes. Okay, superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. That sounds optimistic. Um, where I, I assume we can get this book anywhere. Where do we find you, and where do we find the work that you do at Human Progress? Um, I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute uh, in Washington, D.C., um, and uh, I run a website called humanprogress.org, and you can find the book on superabundance.com or on Cato's website or on amazon.com. So thanks for buying. Do you do uh, social media or, or do you stay uh, away? Yes, Human Progress has um, Twitter. I don't for sanity reasons, <laughs> uh, but Human Progress has Twitter, we have Facebook, we have Instagram. And I don't know what else. You know, we try to keep up all, with the all times. the stuff. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Yeah, so. Okay. Cool. Thank you so much for doing this. My absolute pleasure. Thanks. It's been fun. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.